we're in a topical sermon series, and so each week it's a different text during this sermon series. Today we're looking at Colossians 3, verses 1 to 17, and Sarah Vandenberg will read the scripture for us. If then you, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked, when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, These put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. Today we're talking about change. Who doesn't want their lives to be better? So change is typically a good thing, um, but of course in life sometimes there are changes that are happening where uh, we fear we're changing for the worst. Uh, And yet the promise of Christianity is growth. And that's part of the adventure Jesus calls us to where when he says to follow him, the idea is that he is bringing us someplace to a better place. And as we're following him, change is happening. So Christianity is quite hopeful. And yet the process of change, whether it's within Christianity or any version of change is often very hard. We're slow to change for a number of reasons. Um, But here's a couple of examples. One is we don't really know how much we need to change until change begins. We don't know what we don't know. And so sometimes as the process of change begins, we start to see more and more how much we actually needed change. And that new insight could be discouraging. Uh, sometimes it's, it's less discouraging just to remain as we are, although then you're dealing with being stuck, you're not growing, the negative effects. But as we start to change, we realize sometimes things were worse than we thought, and that initially could be hard. And so we resist that. Another uh, aspect of change is it requires vulnerability. 
you know, we form certain habits as just a way of managing our lives, certain situations, and we, we wind up with these stock formulas for how we relate to the world. And then you realize things aren't working, so we want to change. But there's a vulnerability of, of being oriented to the world in a new way. And that's part of what Jesus calls us to, that you will, you will give up those old patterns and habits and relate in a new way. But what that means is the things that you used to do that, that worked a little bit, even though they caused problems, you're not going to do them. And you may go through a period where you don't know what works. So you find yourself frustrated because now all your vulnerabilities are there. Your, your lack of control, I don't know what to do. Uh, you're not wanting to fail or make mistakes. And now the things that you used to do, you know that they don't ultimately work, but you don't know what to do. And so the process of discipleship can be really hard. And love is really important for this. And, and that's why that's the theme of our sermon series. We're looking at love and we're in a section of it now that we're talking about how love changes individuals. And in verse 14, really a, an important point within this text it says, above all of these, so these new various habits, new ways of living that are part of following Jesus, above all of them, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The sense is, if you, if you don't understand God's love for you, if you don't love God, well, then Christianity will be frustrating, it'll be confusing, the whole of our lives will be frustrating and confusing. So it's saying in this process, above everything, we need to put on love. So that's going to be in the background of what we're talking about today. But also this idea of change comes right out of verses 9 and 10. We're now speaking to those who have already started the Christian life. He says, you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. The assumption is the, the call to follow Jesus involves a getting up and going, which means change is part of it. You're, you're on a new path. You're leaving old ways of thinking and old habits, old desires behind, and you're putting on these new things. That's, that's how the passage works. Um, but we're in process, and that process is hard. Change is hard, and that's what we're going to talk about today. It's kind of like uh, there are various um, metaphors or models for change. If any of you have ever done a renovation of a kitchen or a bathroom, that can be a radical change, and it could be a good change. The, the planning of it, some people love it and are excited about it, but it really can be overwhelming. So many choices of trying to figure out your budget, so many things. In New York City, for those of us here in New York, uh, things are so complicated with building rules and permits that just to get the renovation started takes more than some of us have energy for. But, you, but, but usually there's enough excitement about the possibilities, whatever your motivation is, you want to increase value of your investment, or you want to have a more comfortable place to live in, or whatever it is that would motivate you to do that work. It can be really hard to get going, but you sustain yourself through it. But then when demolition begins, that is often a miserable period of time. So miserable that some people factor into their budget five or $10,000 to go live somewhere else for a couple of months while it's happening. For those on a tighter budget, if you live through once a wall gets broken open and there's dust everywhere, uh, and then you know they, they take out your stove, planning on putting the new one in, but, but they realize Con Edison has to do something with your gas beforehand, and so you didn't plan on having four days without a stove. And so after your 10th meal on your bed with whatever you cooked in your toaster oven and rice cooker, you start to think, boy, was I so greedy that I wasn't content with the kitchen that I had. If, I, if only I can go back. You know, it's in the middle of that mess that you start to feel regret. You start to feel hopeless. And it's in those situations where the blueprint, the rendering can be helpful because you find yourself thinking this is never going to end. My new reality is a mess. And then you look at the plan and you realize, no, actually, this is part of the plan and this is messy. But, 
But once we get to this next point, it will come together. And so the blueprint tells you what to do, but the, the rendering gives you the motivation, the inspiration. If I can get through this period, well, then the outcome will be good. It will have been worth it. But usually in that period, unless we can look forward and really have a sense where we're going is good, we'll hate the present enough that we just want to go back. And, and you know that in your own life, you see that in the Bible with, with the people of Israel brought out of Egypt. Uh, they were too afraid to conquer the, com- uh, the, the promised land, but they wanted to go back to their miserable situation because they hated that transitional period. Uh, from the Christian perspective, we'll live in that transitional period. Jesus says, follow me. If you've answered that call, you get up and you follow him. And yet things are not fulfilled and realized. And so part of the adventure of Christianity is excitement and learning and growth and new. But part of it is also change, <laughs> putting certain things to death, forcing certain habits away. And that in-between period, sometimes you just feel, I'd rather go back to my old life. At least I knew what to do. At least it was, yes, I may have been miserable, but I, I could function. Now I'm I'm facing new challenges. Uh, what this means is that the Christian life always has this aspect in it. There's a sense in which every day, good or bad, there's that component of adventure. I might face something new. I might have to learn. I might have to, to resist certain habits. And that's always hard, but it could be overwhelming at certain times, and we're in one of those times. Right now, there's been so many cha- changes put on us. Some of your work, uh, some of you are working far more than you ever have. Some of you are working far less in terms of what does it mean to be without our routines. Any of the number of changes we have have been put on us. We, we didn't invite them, but here they are. And yet it could be really hard because we long to go back. But the reality is there's no going back. So what does it look like to be faithful now? And we don't know exactly where we're going. But from a Christian perspective, and this is what Paul says, set your minds on things above. He's not saying stop looking at the world around you. Um, he's saying look, look in a broader way. There, there are bigger things going on. Your life is bigger than just this moment. And it's like that blueprint and that rendering that helps us in this moment that where we don't have to do some superficial religious thing to say, well, everything happening now is great. I can't complain. It actually tells us that we can be honest to say, I don't like this, but I'm not going to go back. I'm not going to give up. But Jesus is taking me somewhere. And, and so I need to have the faith. And, and, and the faith and the hope is important. But right now we're talking about love because in the present, what do you do? That's what he says. Above all, put on love. And that tells you part of what to do. It doesn't tell you specifically But it says right now, whatever else you're doing over everything, try to love God and neighbor and move forward. And so I want to talk today about this process of change, about the old self that we read about in verses 9 to 10. But then what I'm calling the being renewed self, that's the language of the passage, and then the new self, those three things, the old self where we were or where what we should leave behind, the being renewed self, our present reality, we're in process, and the new self where we're headed. So I'm going to begin with the old self. So the Christian life is follow me, and so that involves change. Most of us are looking to make our lives just a little bit better, which is why the radical conversion stories usually come from people whose lives have totally fallen apart. They've hit rock bottom. The stereotype is the drug addict, the person in prison, the person who who, uh, completely makes a mess of their life. They hit rock bottom, and then they don't care about leaving everything. They want everything in their life to change. For most of us, We want our lives to be better, and therefore you'll always find something appealing in Christianity, but there's also always something that you don't want to let go of, or even something that you know is not working for you, but you just can't let go of it. And then and then that radical, but but follow me, trust me with everything, 
becomes scary or it becomes unappealing. And in some cases, it becomes offensive. We're, we're committed enough to something of who we are that we say, I don't like that Jesus is, is telling me to trust him and to let go of these things. And so, so the Christian life could involve a lot of frustration, fear, battle. Um, but what we're told is that what's promised is thorough and deep, and we will be so much better off if Jesus is who he says he is, if his ways are good, and so keep going. And so in verse 9, the, the description here to people who have already begun the Christian life, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And even in this passage, where what, what we look to, what we hope and what we long for, what desires we have, are connected holistically with our practices. And Jesus is saying, all of this is going to be renewed. But you have to trust me and start cutting some ties, letting go of things. And so in verse 5, he uses the language, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. <laughs> there are certain things that you have to you have to just, you can't allow them to linger and make excuses for them. That's really hard. In verse 7, he says, in these two, you once walked, this description, but verse 8, but now you must put them all away. And so the language of putting to death fits this death-resurrection paradigm of Christianity, of this new person. The putting away of verse 8 fits the imagery here. It's like you're getting changed. You just came back from a workout. Don't sit down to dinner with your sweaty clothes. <laughs> Take them off. They stink. You're uncomfortable. You're going to get a rash. Take them all off. You know, don't leave your underpants on and take your pants off, but go change and shower and come back to the table. And so he's saying, now you must put those away because we're putting on something new. It's a different context. Now I'm going to generalize. Um, uh, this passage gives a lot of specific practices. It's worth reading through this and, and finding where do you need to grow? Where, what do you need to change now? I'm, I'm going to come up with two basic categories. Now this is a bit of a simplification, which flattens out the nuances, but for the sake of time, um, I'm going to do it. <laughs> but in terms of your study of this passage, maybe, it's a, maybe this is a bit of a simplification. Um, but there's a, the first grouping, what we get in verse 5, all seems to be thematically under the category of lust. It begins with sexual immorality. It talks about impurity, passion. It's not talking about being passionate, enthusiastic. It seems to be talking about lustful passion. Evil desire, there's lots of evil desires. It could be murderous, but um, but thematically, most commentators think this sticks together. So even covetousness, the covetousness could be various. But there seems to be this sense in which he's addressing um, the desires that we could describe as lust. And, and, and the key point, I think, here in verse 5, the, the, the problem is described as idolatry. That's the end of the verse. Uh, it talks about covetousness, which is idolatry. Um, now, again, each of these specific uh, words has their own nuance, but together, they talk about an orientation to the world that, that Jesus wants to correct. Paul says, set your minds on things above where Christ is seated. We're supposed to have a vision of something beautiful. We're supposed to be connected to it, join with God. We're supposed to believe. We're supposed to have hope. There's supposed to be something bigger that we see and experience that brings comfort, that brings identity, that brings hope. All of these things and the idea is when you don't see that, when we're not looking there, we're going to seek out the desire for that somewhere. And if there's one major area, it's not the only area, one major area where you'll seek out the desire for those things, it's within sexuality, which is why sexuality could function like a religion. We may not term it that way, but in terms of what do you, what do you devote yourself to? What are your practices? Where does your identity come from? What do you think about? marketers know this, if they want to sell you something you're not interested in buying, if they could tie it to something that appeals to that instinct, you'll automatically be open to it because that's what you're devoted to. 
Paul was saying, but that kind of devotion, if that's your main devotion, it's harming you, it's harming others. That's not a healthy view of sexuality. And idolatry is always uh, a problem. And so if your main source of comfort, if your main source of identity, if your main source of power, if your main source of, of, of devotion in your practices are in that realm, you're likely making a mess of things. And so we get an expanded vision, which is not to say sexuality is bad, put that to death. It's saying, set your minds on Christ, something that's satisfying, be connected and put on these characteristics and it will renew even your sexuality. So your specific habits will change over time because they're put in place covered by love. And so that one category is idolatry. The category is not sexuality, it's idolatry, but in the Bible, those are often linked. The other category is truth. Truth is really important, and yet we live in a world where we're not as tied to truth. And so in verses 8 to 9, anger, malice, slander, obscene talk. In verse 9, what is the practice? Do not lie to one another. Now, again, anger is different than, than lying. Slander is different than lying in a certain sense and nuances. But there's a sense in which once we're not dealing with truth, you could expect all of those things to be part of that life. And so put that to death. <laughs> put it away. Don't lie to one another, but, but live the truth. And so, so even if I'm wrong in categorizing all of these things under idolatry and deception, if you read the Bible from beginning to end, you know those two themes are strong, the problem of idolatry, the problem of deception, and they're contrary to love. And that's what, what, what we're learning here is put your idolatry away. It's part of the old self. Put your deception away. It's part of the old self. Put on love. This is part of a new self. It's a new way of doing things that you have to learn. <laughs> and it takes patience. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be scary. But it's going to be wonderful because idolatry and deception don't work. You know how to do it. You know how to make the most of it. But it's destroying you and those around you. And so we're told, put that off. Um, and so uh, there's a vulnerability in, in stepping out here. But we're told to do that. Um, and so you know, just as a quick example of, of how this works, it just more broadly in the process of change, the old self, you know, it's remarkable how much we learn when we're young and we don't unlearn it. So something like a temper tantrum or any kind of tantrum, you know, a young child, a three or four year old doesn't have uh, the ability to articulate what they're thinking and feeling. They don't have much power in the relationship with their parents and yet they want what they want. Human beings have wants. We have desires. So a three or a four-year-old learns to read their parents. They learn the feedback loop. If I do this, I get yelled at. If I do this, I get punished. And yet their desires are there. And so they learn. If I cry, that wears them down. If I cry, that distracts them. And, and so, so we learn that as, as an orientation. And when you get older, you're supposed to unlearn that. That doesn't work. But what we often do is we refine it. We realize being crying and demanding by the third to fifth grade doesn't work with your teacher and with your friends. And so you don't change the impulse, you just stop the crying, but you, you, keep, you keep your demands in some more appropriate way, and you become a teenager, and then you become an adult. And the impulse to say, I'm, I don't like this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with this, and uh, we, we, we haven't changed it, we've refined it until we've honed it into a place where we no longer know what the root is, except we realize so many of the ways we relate to people aren't working. <laughs> because at the end of the day, the root of it is, is a tantrum. And we haven't changed it. We've just fixed it to make it as socially acceptable and uh, effective as possible. And now we're told there's a new way. There, there's a way that you learned wherever it came from, and you need to, to stop and do some new things. And Jesus is going to guide you, and he's going to give you practices, and he's going to give you things to put on. 
but you're going to have to trust him and it's going to be scary. And, and what you've been doing hasn't been really working. And so you're going to need to try new things and it's not going to work, but, but there are better ways. And that's the vision we're given. And so, so there's the old self. We're told, get going in life, move forward. Don't stay stuck, but that's going to involve vulnerability. So first put off the old self. Uh, now, secondly, you, you want to put on, or, or you'll deal in the realm of what I'm calling the being renewed self. That's just the language of verse 10. We talks about you've put on the new self, but it's important here, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You know, as a church, we say we're committed to the restoration and renewal of relationships with God, within ourselves, with others, and with the world. That idea of restoration, go back and read the whole of Colossians, reconciliation and alienation, Jesus comes to bring together what's been broken. But those who respond to that need to be renewed. And that's what we're told in verse 10. You put on the new self, but it's not like you instantly have it all together. This new self is being renewed in knowledge. You have a lot to learn a lot to try, but, but it's after the image of its creator. There's something deep inside of who you are that in washing away your sin will start to show something wonderful and glorious. And so this new self that Jesus offers as part of the life of following him is being renewed. And we're in a process, but the process means we're, we're in between putting, putting off an old life that wasn't working, but you figured out how to manage it in a new life, which will be great that you're not yet there. And you exist in this process, which sometimes is wonderful, and sometimes it's scary and hard and infuriating. But we're told, don't go back, go forward. You're being renewed. That's the promise. Let's be made new. And so he gives us all these different traits. After you take off all of these other traits, put on these new aspects um, that are right there in the passage. But, but, but the highlight, verse 14, is above all of these. Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It's like putting on socks, underwear, an undershirt. There are all these parts of getting dressed that are important, and people may not see them. And then you may um, put on a shirt, but part of it is tucked in, so people see part of the shirt, not all of it. You put on a jacket, maybe, and people see only a section of it. But, but what people to see, what, what, what you put on over everything is love. That's what ties everything together. That's verse 14. It binds everything together in perfect harmony. And you know, our logo is this cross that has these cracks in it. The alienated has been reconciled through Christ, and we're now bound together, and now we're being renewed. We're being made new, and above all of these, it's love. It's, it's the love of Christ that binds everything together, and that's part of the, the new life. And so this imagery of changing our clothes uh, actually helps us when we think of, well, how do we change our, our emotional life, our relationships, our practices? In the neighborhood I grew up in, I grew up in Brooklyn, um, and I don't know if the practice is still the same because it's been about 25 years I've lived in Manhattan now, uh, but when I was younger, typically at a wedding, weddings might be early in the day, 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning, and yet the reception might not start till five o'clock. And so what was typical is people would go to the wedding ceremony dressed as they would go to church, which for a lot of people meant they would go casually, they would just wear jeans and a t-shirt. Uh, and then when the wedding, and of course, not the people getting married, not the wedding party or the family, uh, but guests would just wear, dress casually. And then after the wedding, they would go home and do whatever they do. And then you would get dressed up in your finest, fanciest clothes. Um, and then you'd go to the wedding ceremony. And there was a wedding that I went to uh, with a friend of mine from high school. Uh, this was some years ago. 
And I went to the reception and I was wearing at the time what, what, what I thought was my, my greatest suit and I uh, was with my friends and we went over during the cocktail hour. Now this is Brooklyn Italian. And so, so the cocktail hour is this really extravagant thing with all this food. And there's this guy online serving himself food on a plate, wearing jeans, a t-shirt and a baseball hat. And so I said to one of the people I was with, who on earth is this? <laughs> Clearly not a guest, uh, but thinking, you know, who had come? And, and so I had friends that used to be in wedding bands and they'd have a friend come, come together as a roadie to help set up and carry the equipment. Usually that person would at least put on black pants and a button up shirt. You know, you didn't have to get dressed up, but you wouldn't show up with jeans and a t-shirt and a baseball hat. Who on earth is this guy and what is he doing? I said, I asked the question because I, you know, not that I was, you know, some, some, uh, uh, a elite person that, that was a, a, a social trendsetter. It just stood out. So I remember saying, who is this guy that comes to a wedding like this? As it turned out, he was a guest. He was a friend of the bride. He was a coworker and he had moved to the United States at some point, maybe within the year, I don't know, from Britain. Uh, and he had not been to an American wedding. And so he showed up at the wedding in the morning, presumably wearing a jacket and tie. And at the service, he looked around and I don't know what he was thinking because I never spoke to him, but he likely had a thought like, wow, Americans really are informal. You know, they come to a wedding just dressed like this, and so he went home and changed. <laughs> uh, but he changed out of his formal clothes, whatever he had worn, to the reception into informal clothes, and he had it exactly backwards. And so, so the truth is, he probably did not stand out wearing, if he was wearing a jacket and tie at the ceremony. A lot of people weren't, but if you did, it was fine. But you don't wear jeans and a baseball hat to a reception. And, and there's something here where, where the Christian life, we're told, you're starting to get dressed in this world, and, and you may stand out, but it's okay. And so, so no doubt, with this analogy, this illustration, this story, there were some people that would have looked at that guy and been like, who's this guy I think he is showing up with a jacket and tie when he's not in the wedding party? There are some cynical people that will, they're haters. People will hate everything. Most people wouldn't think that, wouldn't even notice it, or if they noticed it, might think, this guy looks nice. Uh, but... There will always be uh, mixed thoughts. And so, so Jesus has put on all these attributes. Yeah, you go out into this world clothed as a Christian, and there are some people that are going to just despise you. They just despise anyone who's trying to do good. But a lot of people aren't even going to notice. You're going to be self-conscious about all these weird new practices. But there are a lot of people that will appreciate it. Some people that would say, you know what, I wish everybody in the world was more like this. And so you get these mixed reactions. Uh, but the main point here is that there's, there's something about starting to change in this world that may not fit, but you're getting ready for a greater reality that you want to fit into. And what you don't want to do is live your whole life and show up before God saying, I just thought I was good enough. <laughs> um, when the Bible says, yeah, no one's good enough and God accepts you that way, but he's going he's gonna to call you to a new life and he's going to help you. And so he tells you to, to trust him and to receive and to, to put off what doesn't belong and to, to put on what's new. And what we need in this is love, which will bind everything together in perfect harmony. And it's that harmony that we're promised. What we're told is the old life, it's not, you can't hold it together. The slander, the malice, the immorality, the covetousness, whatever it is, if those things are present, you can't hold it together. Something's not going to work. Your relationships aren't going to work, or your relationships will work, but psychologically you'll fall apart, or everything there will be fine, but you won't be able to hold a job. There's something that's not going to work if these bits of brokenness are there, because if there's idolatry and deception, you can't have a life that has coherence. But what we're told is this new life 
it's a process, but it starts to mend the pieces, starts to pull things together. And so we're told, put to death what's earthly, put off, put away what had been your old customs and look to Jesus, set your eyes there. He's the model. What is it about him and how do you become that? How do you start to do that? Well, you put on compassion, you forgive one another, and above all of these things, you put on love. So that's the process of being renewed. It takes daily practice, intentionality. But when your minds are set on things above, you can face your discouragement. This isn't working, but that's okay. Let me stay at it. I'm afraid? Well, that's okay. Stay at it. And here's the third thing that I'm going to talk about, the new self. So there's the old self, the being renewed self. Now third, the new self. What we're told is is there's a new reality. And and what's funny about this passage, when Jesus talks about eternal life, we tend to think of it as days without end because we live in time. There's something much broader that's hard for us in our finite minds to grasp. But even if in this passage, as as it talks about space and time, you realize there's something here that we, we don't yet have access to, where it says there's an expansion. Set your minds on things above where Christ is seated. And because we tend to be simplistic, we can't take it all in. We tend to think in black and white categories. We think, okay, stop looking at this world and and think of the next world. It's not saying stop looking. It's not saying bury your your head. It's not saying to try to escape into a dream world. It's saying there's more to this world than you can see. There's more to life than just your life expectancy and then death. But if you set your minds to something bigger, to broader, if you look ahead to where Jesus is, where he says he's gone before you, if you realize there's an expanded reality, it all of a sudden changes your perspective on this reality. We put to death what's earthly in us, but we don't stop living life on this earth. It's as we set our minds to where Christ is seated, we find what life in this earth is really meant to be lived like. And so in terms of space, we're expanding our conception of the world in which we live. But what's interesting in terms of time, um, uh, where it tells us, In verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. There's this future reality that we're waiting for. Right now, we're in process. When this happens, you will. So there's future. And yet, verse 1 says, if then you have been raised with Christ. That's this weird thing. Wait a second. We've already been raised, and yet something will happen And that's this remarkable section of life that we live in. Yes, it can be scary. It can be confusing. There can be challenges. But we're told, if you turn to Christ, if you believe his death was for you, and you put aside all that's earthly in you, and you receive forgiveness and grace, and you put on this new life, then it's like you already have the new life. It's not that you'll live moralistically and try to do your best until heaven and just pass your time, but but new life is given to you, a new identity, a new everything. And you just need to learn to live it. So if you've already been raised with Christ, and that's the invitation, come and believe in Jesus. And what he did in the past becomes your reality now. You can be a new person. But most of you are thinking, but I don't feel like a new person. I feel like the old person. That's what we're told. Well, well, do that work. Put to death what's earthly. Put away these things, but keep your eyes on where Jesus is. Because if you keep looking there, one day you will see. There will be an appearing when Christ who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so when Paul writes to changed people, he says in verse 12, put on then, so this new clothing, put on then as God's chosen, holy and beloved. See, this is different than moralism. He doesn't simply say, get your act together. 
but he says, the reason in verse one, you seek the things that are above is that's because where Christ is. Now, where was Christ? Christ came and joined himself with us. And, and really what's here in view is this union with Christ. We join our lives with him. We, we're bound together. That's why love is so important. I see the Christian life won't make sense if it's just these are the rules or this is the culture or this is the way of thinking or here's the mystical experience. None of that will work because we go from alienation to reconciliation. It's God's love that does that. When we're bound to Christ, then we could start to, to be bound within ourselves and bound to one another in love. So th- seek where, the things where Christ is. And when he appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Um, And so verse three says something profound for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And it's that reality where, where, where the life of Jesus is our life. If he joined himself with us in the incarnation and suffered death for our wrongdoings, we're told when we believe in him, his death becomes our death. And then his life becomes our life. He who is raised from the dead, God's power over death and unmasking the deception that this miserable life is all that there is, but there's something more to this reality. We're told that's given to us now. And so look to Christ because when Christ who is your life appears, you will appear with him in glory. So put on as God's chosen ones. That's a hard one to understand. I'm not going to unpack all the details on that, but we tend to think of love as responsive. If I do something someone likes, they will love me. If I'm good looking enough, people will love me. And what we're told is God's love is of God's choosing because love is from God. In other words, God doesn't look down and say, this person has, has done enough good things that I will bring him into my kingdom. That person will be so useful uh, to me, I will make her mine. That's how we tend to think. But we're told that, that God's choosing, God's placing love on us is profound. And the encouragement there for people in process when we find that we're not lovely, when we're not effective for the kingdom, when it's falling apart, we don't have to wonder, well, will God still love me? We're told that, that we're to put on this new life as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Our identity is that we are those who have been loved by God. So we're told, put that on over everything, over everything. Put on love. If Christ loved you enough to share in your sufferings, He will love you through the present sufferings. And so clothe yourself with compassion. Put aside your slander. Forgive one another. And above everything, hold it together with love. Because when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. Now, why are we told to set our minds on things that are above? Verse 1 says, because Christ is seated at the right hand of God. See, the right hand of God is the place of honor, the place of power, the place of authority, Look to that place of glory. That's where Christ is. What we're told is if Christ has joined himself to us, he who is in the place of highest power and privilege and yet is filled with love and compassion is holding a place for us there. That's this new life that we live, a life of dignity that says this is not about the rules that you can't do this and you have to do this. It's about an old way of life that was harmful. So stop, just put it aside and look to the one who has really loved you. Who has loved you more than the one who joins with you in your death and says, and if you believe in me, you will join with me in my life. And so what we're told is to to be that new person. Is your identity by faith, I am holy and beloved. Why? Because I chose God? No. Because despite the fact that I didn't, God chose to set his love on me. I am now 
holy, not because of how I live, but because Jesus has clothed me with his love and his righteousness. I am beloved, not because I earned it, but because love is from God. And we're told if that's what God does to us, then that changes what you should be doing for anyone around you. All those imperfect people in your life, treat them with compassion, forgive them, be committed to the truth, and love one another. My wife, um, her English teacher in high school, told everyone, urged people when they came to take the SAT to put on business clothes. <laughs> the idea is there's something in your mindset if you show up for this test knowing that, that you're ready for this and that your future is tied to it, there will be a different mindset than if this is just some other miserable high school exam. And it's, it's that, that, that mindset that says when you go into this world, if your expectation is let me get the most out of it that I can, let me seek as much pleasure and glory for myself as I can, that's going to raise your expectations. But if you come into this world and say, the Lord has bestowed honor and glory on me, the one who sits at the right hand of the Father, he came to love me that I would join with him. Then you go out into this world as a different person. <laughs> now is an important time as you sit through your 20th Zoom meeting with your sweatpants on and your camera carefully uh, with your chest and shoulders above you. We're in this new reality that, that we have no structure, we have nothing, and, and we're, we're, we're relating to the world differently. We're told be the kind of person that it doesn't matter what people can see. <laughs> Make sure compassion is in there. Make sure forgiveness is your undershirt, whether or not anybody could see it. Put on love so people can see that. But there's an honor and a dignity as you go into the world that's empowering, that's exciting, that, that shows you what to do. And it says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. Uh, here's how I want to close. I think that this is so deep and profound that if we can grasp it, it's revolutionary. It really breathes renewing life into us and changes us to live the kind of lives Jesus tells us to live. But if you find yourself thinking, I still don't get it. I'm still struggling. Why do I want to go back? How come the same sin patterns uh, haven't been gone? Um, the encouragement is not be patient with your sin. It's be patient with yourself. But it says your lives are hidden with Christ and it's that hiddenness that's hard. There, there's, there's something we don't yet see. And so if you find yourself confused, there's good reason. You've learned life one way and we're told you need to unlearn it. But, but this new life, there's a hiddenness currently, but we're told when it appears, you'll see. You'll, there's a, a new reality that's yours. It's kind of like a direct deposit payment. If you can see the cash, you're at danger of being robbed or losing it or spending it. When the money goes right into your account, you don't see it, but it's safer there if it's FDIC insured. Uh, we're told to set your minds to where Christ is. Why? Because Christ is your life. If you're joined to him, that's your hope. He suffered death, but he conquered it. You can suffer through uh, the death of your sin, and you will conquer, but your life is hidden. And so right now, it's going to be hard, and there's going to be a wandering, and there's going to be confusion, but stay the course. Put on love above everything. And we're told that when he appears, you will appear with glory. What's hidden now will be revealed. And what we're told is the glory of Christ uh, in all of his greatness. Put your sights there because that is who you're being renewed to be like. You're being renewed in the image of God, Christ, who is the image of God. And so don't look back. Keep going. I'm going to pray for us. Our Father, some of us may feel 
like the old people, unchanged, struggling, foolish, confused, still causing harm. Lord, Lord, help us to see if we're just stubborn or if you're showing us greater depths of where we need to change. But Lord, help us to battle discouragement. Help us to battle the lies, the deception that tells us misery is all that we have, that we will never grow, that we can never repair the harm that's been done. It's not true, given the promises of the gospel. Lord, help us to put aside our our idolatry and not to hope in the things that have been created or what our minds can come up with, but to look to Christ who is seated at the right hand of the Father and to see something of that glory and that joy and that beauty and to be comforted by it so that we don't seek comfort in what destroys, that we don't seek to exercise a power in a way that's harmful, but that we become forgiving and compassionate. Lord, clothe us with your love and help us to put to death what's earthly and to put on the clothing that shows the dignity that we have been chosen, holy and beloved, because you are the kind of God who shows kindness and mercy. Lord, give us strength for the work and the challenges of today and this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.